DKS 22 is powered by Cliff Central, uncensored, unhinged, and unradio. Hello and welcome to the Digital Kung Fu Show, a podcast and videocast for startup founders and entrepreneurs. Even if you're alone in your entrepreneurial journey, know that right now in your earbuds, you are joined by thousands of entrepreneurs across the world hustling today's markets. At Digital Kung Fu, we have one goal, to help entrepreneurs succeed in their ventures through information sharing, digitally connecting them with other entrepreneurs, and by dissecting and deconstructing the world's leading business minds right here on this show. Remember, you can view the full show notes on our website at digitalkungfu.co. Dot ZA or tweet this show using our handle at digital kung fu ZA or follow us on facebook.com slash digital kung fu ZA. Paul Graham defines a startup as a company that is designed for rapid growth. But in order to achieve that growth, startups need inevitably to have a technology driven play. But building technology for people or founders that are not technically natured can be an incredibly difficult thing to overcome. So I reached out to Tim Hamilton in Austin, Texas. He is the CEO of Praxent Technologies and has been building technology-driven players now for big brands over in the States for the past 15 years. If anyone is qualified to understand how technology can position a startup for growth at market and product level and how startup founders can build software that literally eats the world, to quote Mark Andreessen, then this is the show for you. And pay specific attention towards the end of the show where Tim reveals a little-known secret that's been holding his company back over the years. And we discuss and unpack how entrepreneurs can overcome these sorts of problems. Enter Tim Hamilton. Cool. Okay. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to the 22nd edition of the Digital Kung Fu Show. I am your host. My name is Matt. And I'd like to kick this show off with a quote by Kurt Vonnegut. I believe that's how you pronounce his surname. (laughs) We'll go with that. But he says that, quote, I think that novels that leave out technology misrepresent life as badly as Victorians misrepresented life by leaving out sex. (laughs) Our guest on the line today is Tim Hamilton, uh, the founder and CEO of the US-based technology firm Praxent. It's a company that for the past 15 years has been doing some amazing things in the service innovation and digital technology space. And it's a space which represents huge opportunities for companies of all sizes, not just startups, to unlock dormant uh, value and ultimately bottom line growth. So Tim, thank you for your time today. It's great to have you in the hot seat. Ah, thanks so much for having me. No, you're very welcome. Very welcome. So why don't you start or kick us off by giving us just a big picture uh, overview of your Praxent sort of journey and company, and then we'll jump into the meat and potatoes of uh, technology after that. Yeah, absolutely. I, um, to sort of to start off with, you'll hear that I've got a South African accent. Uh, so, so many of your listeners might find it interesting that I was originally born in Joburg, um, grew up in Durban and moved to Houston. When I was 11 or 12, uh, with my family back home in, you know, Durban and Joburg, I, um, I stumbled upon, uh, this thing called the internet. This is 1999, like seven, 98, 99 and discovered that I could put up a website, which my family and friends back home could, could see. And I felt an instant connection, um, back 
to the, the, the place that I really loved and missed. And I just, I wanted to learn as much as I possibly could about it. And so I started just building websites, uh, fictitious websites to learn. Mm. I pretty much you know, quickly lost my motivation because they were fictitious. They weren't really being used. And so I thought, well, you know, if I could actually do this for a real company and get paid, wouldn't that be amazing? And so I, um, I started knocking on doors basically and did my best to find my first real paying project. And, um, and that was 16 years ago and, uh, and, and sort of have never stopped early, early days for the first, let's just say one third of the journey. I was building websites, you know, essentially doing digital marketing. And then, um, the second third I was building essentially startup companies, software as a service products. And then for the, for the last sort of epoch or chapter of the, of the 16 years, um, it's been a professional services consulting and development company. Mm-hmm. Okay. Awesome. What, um, what made you, I know you start, you mentioned that you started off building websites, but did you, did you always have an affinity for technology and uh, what made technology or software um, the play for you as an entrepreneur? I absolutely had an affinity for technology early on. I remember when I was six or seven or maybe, maybe seven or eight, my dad uh, brought home this, this computer. It was basically a black and white TV with a you know, tape drive on it. It was called a spectrum or something, something like that. Mm. And I remember opening up the manual and writing my first program word, like word character by character from this manual. And it just made stars twinkle on the screen. And I, I was completely hooked. There was something to me about um, giving this machine instructions and, and having it intelligently interpret the instructions and then give me a response. And this sort of palpable um, uh, cause sort of input and reaction back and forth. It felt like, it was just was extremely exciting. Um, and it was also very, very, um, creative. Mm. I thought right then and then I would, you know, I'd go off and become a computer programmer, like a computer science, uh, expert. And that was sort of my direction. Um, I got to university studying computer science. This is in Austin. Now we moved to, to the US and, um, I found very, very quickly that actually studying computer science was way too tactical for me. I, I actually lost interest. Um, and I was more interested in the possibility, um, the possibilities that technology created within businesses, businesses and within markets. And so I changed my focus to economics and management information systems and, and just fell in love with the possibilities that, uh, technologies created within the business atmosphere. Yeah. Yeah. I think a lot of us do feel that way, especially in the startup scene. Um, and speaking of startup scenes, I'm sure you're familiar with Mark Andreessen. Uh, for sure. Yeah. Cool. So he coined this term, um, software is eating the world. And I don't know if you're, if you're familiar with that. Yeah, for, absolutely. Cool. So, yeah. So <clears throat> I wanted to ask you in your experience being, you know, in the deep end of software development, um, what is driving that term or that trend and why? The way that we think about innovation um, is that there's sort of three different ingredients for every company that wants to um, innovate so that it sort of creates a 3X or a 4X or a 5X competitive advantage. The first, the first ingredient is a cost innovation where they're taking a look at their cost structure and they, they're fundamentally driving a huge chunk of their costs down um, by building perhaps a system that 
provisions itself or um, enables customers to serve themselves. The second ingredient to this um, sort of competitive uh, advantage innovation is a, is a sort of a product benefit or a customer benefit component so that um, you, you are, while you're simultaneously lowering the cost of servicing a customer, you're also simultaneously increasing the benefit that they get from engaging with you. Mm-hmm. Um, and you've combined those two things. It's called a value innovation. And there's a book called Blue Ocean Strategy, which is one of the best books I've ever read. It talks specifically about value innovation. Mm-hmm. where um, you are doing those two things simultaneously, driving the cost down while increasing the, the benefit to the customer. If you do that successfully in a business um, and it, it, it's in a healthy market where there's good, strong demand that's growing, you're going to get swamped. You're going to get swamped with the customers who want to buy what you're offering. And you're going to have to sort of build the business to be scalable. And that's where the technology comes in. Um, and I think Mark Andreessen's quote is really, uh, is, uh, is well suited to sort of describe the way the role that algorithms play, like I said, self-provisioning products play, self-service portals play in order to actually um, allow the business to scale to meet the demand. It, it actually has to um, provide essentially digital customer interfaces. Mm-hmm. Another trend that we're seeing certainly in the U S um, with the younger generations, my generation that being a, a millennial myself, I, I'm, I'm disinclined to engage with companies that force me to talk on the phone uh, with a service representative, right? That make me go through a two-step, three-step, four-step process where I've got to sort of wait for feedback or wait for an answer. Yeah. I want my answer immediately and I want to be able to provide it to myself. Yeah, exactly. Um, if, you can, if you have the option to do it yourself, you will, right? Yes. So you're the yeah. same as me. It's like, I, I hate picking up the phone and ordering a pizza, for instance, because it's always the same five questions. You know, what's your name? <laughs> you know, what's your number? Uh, have you ordered with us before? Is this a collection or a delivery? And that sucks for me. You know what I mean? And so I'm the same as you. And I guess what you're saying is, is that at the exact points, like if I could deal with a bot on Facebook Messenger or on some other platform or even just an app that allows me to push one button, Domino's did that, didn't they, with their fridge magnets where you push the button and it orders. Um, and those sorts of value, um, those value innovations really do scale well. I mean, I think that one Domino's example was, it was a, the problem was a language or a translation issue. So the guy ordering the pizza was speaking English and the other guy taking the order was speaking French. So they said, well, how can we solve this? Well, let's push button pizza. So they built this thing and it was a value innovation, scaled amazingly and it, and it was a huge success for them. Absolutely. So that's a brilliant example because you said it sucks for you to talk to a customer service rep to order your pizza, but I'd say it also sucks for the business because it's more expensive <laughs> yeah. yes, for yeah. them to have a human being, you know, that they've got to train, they've got to recruit, they've got to retain. And, um, and that person, you know, has got to, got to go through the process. It's going to be error prone and, um, it's more costly for the business to serve you that way. Mm-hmm. And so by introducing the right kind of technology with the right customer benefit at mind, not only are you reducing the cost profile of the business by automating it, they no longer have the labor cost. You've also simultaneously, as I said earlier, increased the customer benefit, which you yourself described. It's, it's much easier for me to order a pizza through a you know, bot on Facebook as an example. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think uh, more and more industries are discovering that and are building the technology to sort of um, provide the foundation that's necessary. Sure. McDonald's is doing that same thing with kiosks, I believe, where you can literally build your hamburger sort of thing. Um, yeah. 
yeah, I mean, it's just, and to, again, it's that offsetting that labor cost and, and really self-service, a classic example here in South Africa is First National Bank, where they built um, uh, the Dots F&B stores. No one's ever actually in them, if you think about it, but it does two things. One, it says what positions the brand as being a very innovative bank and post that they actually got voted in the world the most innovative bank. And secondly, they were trying to address this need of self-service for millennials because all the brands here are trying to capture this youth segment because they know that that's where the growth is going to come from. Those are the guys that are buying smartphones. Those are the guys that will have expendable income in five to 10 years time. And so everyone's trying to capture them. So it's interesting for me when you talk about this value innovation, how some brands are actually taking it to this sort of fringe level, I guess, where even if people aren't in there, it sends the message that we are this type of brand that will do this for you, even if it doesn't make us money. Yeah, absolutely. There's, um, are you familiar with Redbox? Redbox? No, I'm not. So um, in the US, there was uh, many years ago, like a decade ago, the, there's this massive movie rental um, breakthrough. This company called Blockbuster came in and they allowed people to rent movies and they dominated the industry because they solved a key customer bottleneck, mm-hmm. which, that, which was basically providing a much larger supply of movies a customer wouldn't ever walk into the rental store and want a movie that was not on, not on the shelf or out of stock. And they did this by renegotiating the contract with the movie studios to not have to purchase the, each, each unit of inventory bef- you know, uh, outright. They would instead do a revenue sharing agreement with each of the movie studios. So Blockbuster came on, did an incredible uh, value innovation, um, and uh, they were hugely successful. But their biggest cost, if you look at their P&L, was real estate. The second big, biggest cost was labor. And by taking a look at the cost profile of Blockbuster, uh, Redbox came along and said, wait a second, do we really need the real estate? Wait a second, do we really need the labor? And they basically took a concept of the vending machine and they said, well, could we, could we build a vending machine that essentially stocks a whole bunch of the latest movies and uh, removes the real estate and the labor cost component? And they were very, very successful because um, for sort of, lower uh, socioeconomic groups. They placed them outside of McDonald's locations and outside of grocery stores where people were sort of um, susceptible to an impulse buy. And they just bought the, the DVD for you know, a dollar a day. And of course, sort of the, the next evolution of the story is Netflix comes out and says, well, do we need, do we need the vending machine at all? Mm. Um, and I just think this is a sort of an ongoing cycle where we're sort of moving from physical goods and services, physical infrastructure to virtual goods and services, virtual infrastructures. Mm-hmm. And um, again, we could sort of return to this theme of the software is eating the world. Um, I think it's because this is the trend that's sort of um, uh, pervading. Yeah, exactly. Except in the music industry where vinyl's making a comeback for some reason. <laughs> I, I started a record label when I was in London about, geez, about 15 years ago. Um, exited that, but it was all, it was just at the time when everything was going digital. Beatport started, iTunes launched, and everyone was trying to, you know, capture market share in this online download space. But now all of a sudden, if you stop and fast forward, you know, a decade, you look back, it's like now vinyl's making a comeback. It's weird. It's like almost like an oxymoron. Well, it, it, there's a fascinating book called Positioning by Al Reese. And, um, you know, he talks about this concept of, uh, you know, for every trend, there, there is often room for somebody to sort of position against the trend. So there was a story in the, let's say, 60s, I think it was, an American um, uh, 
soft drink in the in the American soft drink market, there were basically three big players. One of the you know obviously the huge player was Coca Cola, and if you wanted to introduce a new soft drink into the market, you were competing against an eight hundred pound gorilla, Coca Cola. It was it was absolutely. Um, it was an insane proposition. Seven Up comes onto the market with a clear software. It's 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 kind of like Sprite, um, and they come onto the market and they they're really having a difficult time. They can't quite describe the product. They can't compete or sort of position it against the eight hundred pound gorilla. They do some taste tests, and the taste tests reveal a really boring and benign bit of feedback. One of the people tasting it says, "Hmm, this is actually a nice alternative to all the the cola I've been drinking." If I was the researcher conducting that taste test, I would have been like yawn and I would have looked over that piece of feedback. But for some reason, they saw brilliance in this piece of feedback and they said, what if that's our entire strategy? Let's position ourselves as essentially the uncola. We are the opposite of the cola. Mm-hmm. And as I said earlier, this was in the late 60s where there was this incredible um, theme of anti-establishmentarianism, sort of anti-the-man thinking in the US. And they basically... Presented Seven Up as the drink to drink. If you want to sort of demonstrate against the man, mm-hmm. and they went from being a completely obscure brand that nobody knew about to uh, the top, uh, the third top selling soft drink uh, drink in in the country by sort of positioning themselves against the leader. Mm-hmm. And I would say something similar is happening there with vinyl. You know, you've got these people who are um, nostalgic and they kind of want to resist this this urge um, and. And, and vinyl is a wonderful way to do that, I think. Yeah, totally agree with you. Um, so let's jump back to the software eating the world concept, right? Um, I was chatting to, uh, like I mentioned before we started the show, I reached out to the community and said I was interviewing you, kind of get some questions and so forth. Anyway, I started pinging back a couple of emails with this one, one guy. I won't mention his name. Uh, but he said that, um, you know, technology for him is, is fucking hard. He said, quote, that's actually what he said. And then he said, uh, the, the reality is for him is that if it was easy, then everybody would be doing it. Um, so the question for you from that engagement is, do you think that it becomes or that it is easier than ever before to build a tech startup today? So I, um, I completely agree with him. There's, I don't know that there's anything easy um, in the field of entrepreneurship period. I know that it's just technology. I think it's just in, in the world. If any of the stuff that we were, we were doing was hard, I think it'd actually be less interesting. Mm. Um, so I, I might encourage him to sort of look at the fact that it's hard and, and maybe find a way to celebrate that. But perhaps more concretely, there's this wonderful quote by Marcus Buckingham. He says, you know, don't think of strengths as those things that you're good at and weaknesses are those things that you're not good at. He says, instead, think of strengths as those things that after you do them, leave you feeling strong. Mm-hmm. They recharge you. They give you energy. And think of weaknesses, not necessarily as those things that you're not good at, but as those things that after you finish doing them, leave you feeling weak. So I'm guessing that for this guy, um, working in the code, building you know, software probably leaves him feeling weak. And if it leaves him feeling weak, then he should absolutely stop doing it. And he should figure out a way to sort of be, sort of find the awareness of the things that leave him feeling strong at the end of the day and focus on how he can do those things and then fill in the gaps around him with the people um, that you know, are renewed and energized by the work. I mean, myself, for example, I went to computer, I went to university to study computer science. And within one year I realized, oh my God, I do not have the brain for this. This is not at all what I was expecting. I was falling asleep during the lectures. Mm. It was really hard for me as well. 
Okay. In fact, I got to my logic class and failed, and ultimately found found my calling in in uh, in sort of the business in the business realm. And by sort of I don't know, letting myself off the hook a little bit, and you know, not not focusing on uh, how hard it was, I found I found a path to the things that were easy for me and energizing for me. And I would I would hope that he can do the same. Yeah, that's such great advice. Thanks, Tim. Cool. So um, let's talk about. Uh, technology products or software products, right? So um, your team shared a stat with me, something like 68% of software projects fail. And that's something crazy, like 64% of software features are never or really uh, even used by the target consumer or the target user. Um, so why is that in your view? A lot, of, um, a lot of business people who commission software to be built come in with a vision uh, of what they, of what they want to build. Um, oftentimes the vision is incomplete and sometimes it's just completely wrong because it hasn't been validated and you can go and read the lean, uh, the book lean startup by Eric Reese to sort of understand um, the process of, of validating market demand before you build a product. But the, the vast majority of projects start off with the wrong strategic center. They go off heading in the wrong direction um, and then the second thing is they, they sort of build the business case around the software um, way too early. They make an estimate of how long it's going to take and how much it's going to cost before, one, they've gotten the direction right, and two, they've really fully understood the scope of the project. There's this thing uh, which, which if you go Google, don't trust your software projects, uh, your software estimate, you'll find a blog on our website that talks about this thing called the cone of uncertainty. And the cone of uncertainty is, um, is this idea that... the, the Earlier on in a software project you are, the least you know about what you have to build and the challenges that you're going to have to overcome. And so if, if you estimate the project really early on in its life cycle, do so, but recognize that your accuracy is going to be really, really low. And the, the further into the project you get, the, the, the more accuracy and a more awareness you, you get about what actually needs to be built. 68% of software projects still today do fail because the vast majority of business executives expect a, an estimate and a timeline to be uh, fixed upfront at the beginning of a project. And then, uh, and then um, they in a really tough spot later, later on down the line when the project didn't live up to those expectations. Mm-hmm. Obviously the answer to that uh, is the, uh, we, we believe the agile scrum uh, approach to, to software development, but prototyping also plays a really, really big and important role there. Mm. Let's talk about that. You, you made the point about, you know, the earlier on in the build cycle, I guess, um, the, the less you know about what actually needs to be built. So as a startup founder, I've got this idea for a product. If he knows in that context, how does he then eliminate the requirements or scope line items? I guess you could, you could call them that. How does he then achieve his goal, which is in this case, getting a prototype built that solves a problem. Okay. So it's before product market fits and and minimum viable product stuff, but how does he eliminate those requirements? Um, Does he work with the service design methodology? Is it a framework that he can you know, borrow for for instance, Eric Reese, you mentioned the lean startup methodology, but that's more validates the demand, not necessarily, you know, scoping as far as it, as far as it relates to actually building a product. What's the solution there? I'd say like a, a curator working at a museum, the most, the most effective or successful exhibitions are going to be based around a single theme, uh, maybe a single thematic concept. And I'd say I would, I would implore um, listeners to to really think hard about whether or not their vision currently um, 
involves multiple thematic concepts, strategic ideas, or essentially a value proposition. And, and a lot of products begin with multiple value propositions. This is what we're going to do for this group. And this is going to be a benefit for this group. And this is going to be a, a tertiary benefit for this other group. And, and I find that if you can get out of your head with another person who's a lot less in love with the idea, and I think that's really key, find somebody to sort of put on a black hat, which is to say um, the, the hat that's, that's sort of of the opinion that no, that's not a good idea and, and challenge you just as an exercise, challenge every single one of the ideas until you are you know, convinced that you are designing around a single value proposition for a single group of people. Mm-hmm. Um, once, you know, once you've done that, put together, put together that sort of minimum viable product um, concept, but in the form of uh, low fidelity wireframes that are interactive, you can use any number of tools uh, from Axure to Balsamic to do this. Mm. And then actually contact one of the members of that group uh, or, or several, you know, set up seven or eight or nine or 10 phone calls or go to meeting demos with those people and actually demonstrate the, the, the wireframe, keep your mouth shut and let them click their way through it. We do this for every single client engagement and the insights we learn from this user testing is absolutely incredible. Mm. We learn... Uh, perhaps even more importantly uh, than, than what we should build, we learn what we absolutely shouldn't build. And um, that's how we avoid that 64% statistic that you shared, where 64% of the world's features in the software universe are never used, mm. which, uh, which is horrendously wasteful. Sure. Is that, where does ClickModel come into that process or that journey? Yeah, great question. Click model is the name that we've given that process. Um, so that is, that's where all of our engagements begin, where we start by assembling a, a low f- fidelity wireframe. We do usability testing with the, the intended market of the product. And, um, and then we refine, we refine it from a low fidelity wireframe into uh, an actual fully interactive, fully clickable um, front end. Okay, so it's, it's, like, it's almost like a working product without the actual bells and whistles. Is that precisely? Right? Yeah. At the end of the process, at the end of the click model process, the, the client, the business that commissions it gets a, uh, as you said, almost working, fully, fully working product without any of the back end, the middleware, none of the actual engineering work has been done. But, but I would say perhaps some of the most important work has been done, uh, which, which is the sort of the front end, the, the scope reduction, the focusing, um, and, and the great thing is that if you build the front end first, then the team that comes in to build the back end behind you is going to be really, really successful, much, much more successful because what, what they've got now is what we call a definition of done. They know what to do. They, they, have, they have the target that's on the wall and they know precisely what to hit. Okay. So, the, so is the secret then to, to landing the right product to, to, um, to engage the target audience as soon as possible, as early as possible in the cycle? Or is it a consistent thing that you never really stop doing throughout the development process? Stay with us. We'll be right back. Hey there, I know being an entrepreneur can be a very lonely experience. You sometimes get stuck, don't you? Well, if you're like me, being stuck sucks. But what if you could access the minds of over 850 CEOs who have built companies generating billions of dollars in revenue and access all of that knowledge in a fraction of a second? Well, the good news is you can literally do that today. What my team have built is Matt Brown AI. It is trained on all the interviews, over 850 of them that I've done to date, all my books, 
books, all the knowledge capital that has been generated over the last 10 years right here on the Matt Brown Show. And you can get access to all of that right now for free. So how do you get access to this? Well, head on over to mattbrownshow.com and at the top you'll see community. Hit that link, sign up, it's absolutely free and you'll be given instant access to Matt Brown AI and a community of over 100,000 subscribers. Um, I, I would, I would say, um, a bit of both with a slight caveat. I, I wouldn't engage the target market and sort of, you know, you, you can certainly give this a try, but don't expect that by going to the target market and saying, okay, what, what would you, what would you want? Um, what, what do you like? Don't expect them to solve the problem. Right. Mm. I think Henry Ford said, if he went to customers to say, you know, what, what do you want? He would have asked, they would have asked for a faster horse. Right. Yeah. <laughs> And so, so often you've got to actually break, you've got to break the, the, the mental paradigm, the mental concept of, of what a customer or a market believes is possible. Mm-hmm. So oftentimes if you, if you do that, that work, um, it, it'll require you to have in-depth knowledge of the customer experience, the, the, the in-depth, I would say empathy of the group that you're trying to serve. But yes, absolutely engage them as early on get feedback. Um, and I would look up best practices for how to interview people and how to conduct this user usability testing, because there are right ways to do it and there are wrong ways to do it. And you could develop this thing we call happy ears where you, you ask questions in such a way that basically destroys the process. You know, customers are getting excited and it gets you excited and it's basically a false positive. Yeah. Would you like this or would you like this really cool thing? You know, that's something like that. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so um, my experience of, um, I've built quite a few software products in my time. And what I've found uh, in most instances is that um, they go over budget and they're delivered late. Um, and I don't know if you if you found that to be true in your experience as well. Um, but, uh, so in order to control things, um, like costs and timing, for example, uh, it all comes down to scope as well as many other things. But I think what you, what you wind up doing is you start trading off. And what I found interesting going through, um, the stuff that your team sent me was that you described these, these things called trade off decisions and that they need to be made at some point. Um, so for those guys who aren't familiar with what we are talking about, what, what is a trade off decision and what is the implication of those um, trade off decisions for startup founders building tech? Yeah. I mean, I was, I'll, I'll talk about, um, you know, one scenario is where, where, um, you've actually built a product, you've taken it to market and it's actually been successful. You've got customers now using the platform. What we find is that the, the, the habits that got you here or, or the decisions, let's, let's call them the, the, the decisions that got you to where you are now, where you've got a product that's succeeding, it's selling, it's generating profits are not going to be necessarily the same decisions that are going to get you to the next level. In fact, you've got to unlearn those habits. You've got to make different decisions. You've got to fundamentally change. And that can be, that can be kind of painful. Um, yeah, sure. Change, change is difficult in, uh, in, you know, in any, any organization. Um, and so we talk about this concept of, uh, of trade-offs where when you're managing change, you've got, you know, any, any number of things, um, to sort of, to sort of fix or improve a condition, but they could have, you know, negative externalities with them. They could come along with a downside. And, um, a lot of, a lot of business decision makers, um, 
don't really understand or, or, or aren't really included in the process of understanding the trade-offs. So for example, if you've built this product, you likely have a lot of technical debt in it because as a, as a, a startup founder, you, you weren't really able to build it with the, the right amount of software, you know, architecture thinking and a quality design. And so you've now got a product that probably has got some scotch tape or craft or technical debt in it. And you're now facing a, a decision of, well, do we build the next feature on top of an unsound foundation or do we, you know, forego the feature and actually repair the foundation? And making decisions like that is really, really important because if you ignore the technical debt for too long, um, it actually will reduce, it will create drag on every additional feature that you, you create, um, which will increase the cost and lower the ROI on every single one of those features. Um, and it'll start to create bugs in the software, which will reduce the customer experience of the software. So like I said, the things that you did yesterday to get to where you are today are not going to be you know, serving you tomorrow. And so you actually got to start making different decisions because up until now, as a startup founder, you've just been doing feature, 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 feature. That's been the priority. But at a certain point, you've got to start doing what we call paying down technical debt. Because if you don't, you'll degrade your customer experience and ultimately harm all the progress that you've made. And that's a trade-off decision. It's a very difficult decision and you've got to rec- be, be prepared to reckon with those, uh, those decisions um, uh, when, uh, when you, you do launch the successful product. Hmm. I, I think banks are in that situation because, you know, many of them are running around with these 30 year old legacy systems. The world's moved on. Um, they're all trying to address this thing called custom experience and almost all of them in the digital space or in the tech space are falling flat because to to have the money, weirdly enough for me, to to basically take that foundation and redo it to support that business for the next 50 years. But like you say, or as you described, to actually make that decision is just so hard. The cost implications, timing implications, and when the market's moving so fast and you're trying to really grow your bottom line, I think it's got to be one of the hardest decisions that you can ever make as a business owner. What I find is that a lot of organizations, large organizations are actually trying to do those projects. I mean, they, they might have even commissioned several projects internally two, two times or three times or four times, and perhaps they've failed actually, mm. where they actually, they, they're making an effort to, to do it. Um, and, you know, I, there's, a, there's a, a nice quote that I was thinking on recently, which is that if the environment externally to the organization is changing more quickly than the environment internal to the organization, the organization is going to die. Mm. And so right. often if you're trying to do innovative work within an organization, the um, immune system of that organization is going to strike out against the innovation because it doesn't want to change. It's resistant to change. And so, in fact, many organizations are built to resist change. And so you've got this real problem. In order to actually launch innovative ventures within very successful organizations, you've, you've actually got to go outside of that organization. Mm. Um, and that, that feels counterintuitive um, to do. Clayton Christensen is an author who's written uh, several books about this, From the Innovator's Dilemma to the Innovator's Solution. And it's one... Uh, one that I'd really recommend reading through to understand how big organizations can navigate these waters. Yeah, exactly. What I'm seeing in that space is um, a lot of these uh, big brands like Barclays and ABSA and First National Bank, they're starting incubators and accelerators inside those organizations. And they're actually um, disrupting the business model by opening it up to you know um, anyone in South Africa or Africa 
who has an idea for a financial services product, of which there are many, and if they can get through a couple of hurdles, they'll get funded and off they go. And I think it's a way that the um, the traditional legacy brands are, are, are trying to adapt uh, in the face of, as you say, potentially failing at fixing the infrastructure and actually just saying, well, if we open it up, could other people without the uh, organizational inertia do it for us? Mm. Yeah. You know, there's an amazing book um, called Exponential Organizations written by Salim Ismail. And um, it's an amazing book. It talks about how a lot of organizations that are embracing these concepts um, are just taking off and, and technology is at the heart of a lot of them. But certainly what we're talking about more broadly is innovation yes. and managing an innovation practice successfully within uh, an entrenched culture is quite a challenge, but it's one that's, that's really worthy. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Tim, I think at this point I'd like to open up the, um, the interview to the questions from the community, if you don't mind. So um, let's start with the first one. It's from Vlad. Uh, he says, what is the potential of technology to become addictive? Uh, this is a fascinating question about sort of the, the, the psychology of users. Um, and I'll answer it with a slightly different, with a slightly different angle. I mean, the, the word addiction is, is, it's got a negative connotation, certainly, but I might actually suggest that there's a, there's a positive upside to this. Um, there's a management theorist called, um, I've forgotten his, his name. Um, that's fine. That's cool. You're going to Google. Yeah, I just click. Ask God, you'll know. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm terrible with names. Absolutely terrible. Uh, What's your name? It's worth- <laughs> <laughs> um, so there's a management theory by the name of uh, management. There's a management theorist by the name of Aubrey Daniels, who's written a book called bringing out the best in people. And he actually talked um, about the, the, the importance of positive reinforcement in, um, in management practices. And he's this, this kind of psychologist that takes a look at a variety of different management tools from performance appraisals and performance reviews to the employee of the month program, you know, bonuses and that kind of stuff. And he's actually found that none of that stuff works. In fact, it creates a lot of really negative impacts. What he's found interestingly in, 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 uh, in his studies is that positive reinforcement that's delivered at a high frequency to employees or in this case, any human being um, is, is much, much more effective in changing human behavior. And so if the objective here is for us to change human behavior, um, the way to do it is not with negative reinforcement, it's with positive reinforcement. So to illustrate this for you, um, the field of air traffic control is an extremely stressful one. And you have to have a lot of experience. Conventional thinking tells us we have to have a lot of experience in air traffic control to actually be successful, to make all these decisions that are split second decisions that have life or death uh, stakes at the other end. And so they took this group of people that had been in the industry doing it for three years successfully. So the veteran air traffic controllers, and they thought, well, gee, could we, could we bring in a bunch of rookies who've never done this before and then actually get the rookies to outperform the veterans using positive reinforcement? And so what they did is they wrote a little computer script, piece of hardware, plugged it into the computer simulation. And every single time one of the rookies made a good decision to divert an airplane or, you know, whatever it was, Mm. they got a green light with a little 
sound and they and they changed the frequency of the positive reinforcement from like you know one time per minute to like 30 times per minute okay and what they found is that if they can uh positive re- positively and reinforce these rookies and their decisions diverting air traffic control 800 times per minute um they were able to get the rookies to perform better than the three-year veterans within 40 hours of training. No way. Which is absolutely incredible. Yeah. And so, uh, yes, you can, you can look at that scenario and wonder about the addictive potential of technology. But um, I, would say, I would say more broadly that technology absolutely can be used to change human behavior for the better or, f- or for the worse. Um, it, it just depends on what the mission of the organization is. And um, there, there are a lot of really interesting questions for us to explore about, you know, what kind of positive reinforcement do we want to offer to our users, to our employees, to our customers mm. um, you know, for, for whatever challenge that, that it is that we're facing. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Cool. I love that. I love that. Um, right. So next one here is from an She says, how do you achieve work-life balance? Yeah, this is, this is especially difficult for me. I just had a, a, a one, well, my, my son just turned one. And so, you know, as a new dad trying to, trying to figure this out, it's, it's not been easy. Yeah. Um, for me personally, I, uh, I find that creating habits and uh, creating rules in my life uh, and living by them is really, really essential. And there are a couple of, um, there are a couple of building blocks that I've, that I've got to put in place. And the first building block for me is at least three times a week, I've got to provide myself with time, like an hour and a half of, of swimming, just swimming laps. And that allows my brain to essentially defragment and organize uh, all the information that's sort of accrued over the last couple of days. And that's an absolute staple for me. I've got to swim at least three or four times a week. Wow. The second staple for me is a meditation practice. I, I try to meditate for at least 20 minutes a, a day. And for me, this is not a spiritual thing. It's, it's a practical thing. It's about, it's about building my, my mind's um, muscle uh, to cultivate the awareness that I'm not focusing on the thing that I want to focus on. In meditation, the objective is to focus on nothing and to empty the mind. And, um, and that has been an incredibly powerful tool that has, has sort of allowed me to gain much, much more mastery over my emotional mind, which is very reactive. Mm-hmm. And I'd say the biggest problem with life-work balance or really in, in, in happiness in general is one's ability to control his or her emotional reactions. And so I'd say, you know, uh, meditation has been the tool for me to build that muscle so that I can much, much more con- get better at controlling my emotions, which has helped a lot with my happiness and balance. Yeah. Have you tried that app Headspace? No, I have not. Okay. Um, Headspace, uh, definitely have a look at it. If you guys are interested in trying meditation, but don't know where to start, don't read a book, by the way. <laughs> do not do that. <laughs> Just go to headspace.com. They've got like a free trial for 10 days. And this is English guy. I've tried it. Um, it's pretty cool. Um, but it's for 10 days, you do something like 10 minutes a day for 10 days. But after that, if you don't see like an immediate benefit in your life, I'd be very surprised. So headspace.com, if, if you guys are interested in um, trialing out meditation, if, if you like. That's a great recommendation. Cool. Um, so I've got a guy here called Leonie. He says, would you agree with the statement that technology that technology is the great leveler in business today. I think that's a really interesting statement. Um, I don't know that the, the, 
there's a yes or no um, answer necessarily, but I, if we sort of just explore this possibility, there's, there's a lot of work that's going on in the field of flattening organizations. And they've been looking at, um, you know, hierarchically organized companies versus more flat or agile organizations. And, um, and it really does seem like um, with technology, the, 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 the speed of evolution or rather the, the, the rate of change outside or external to our organizations is, is, is increased. And I would say absolutely technology has contributed to an increase in the velocity of change outside of the, of the organization. And as I said earlier, unless the organization can figure out how to change internally to match that pace, mm. it's going to die. It's going to become obsolete. And so a lot of, a lot of organizations are shifting from a hierarchy um, structure where it's about predicting, controlling, and commanding outcomes, where there's a, a limited number of people at the top of the organization that are sort of making uh, decisions for the future of the organization that impact all the people. They're shifting from that model to a flat organization where everybody's sort of um, autonomously self-organizing in small teams that own domains, various domains of the business and responsibilities of the business. And, and, you know, if you think about that, that is quite literally leveling, uh, leveling the organization down to a, a very, very flat uh, modal. And so, yeah, in, in, in many ways, I think technology is contributing to that change. Absolutely. Okay, great. All right. So um, we're going to finish off the interview, Tim, with some rapid fire questions. So see how you go. <laughs> All right, here we go. So what problem do you face every day that nobody else has solved yet? Oh, for me, this is a very personal one and it's very possible that somebody else has solved it. <laughs> but um, for me, anytime I, um, I make decisions based from fear, frankly, um, that is a huge personal problem. And it holds me back. It holds my team back. It holds the company back. So, you know, anxiety-based decision-making is really, really challenging. Okay. Why is that, do you think? Like, in other words, why, why, what's driving that? Is it because you're risk-averse or because... Um, you know, for, yeah, I think fear comes from, you know, the old brain, right? That's, that's our amygdala, which earlier on in, uh, in, you know, previous evolutionary cycles that really as a species allowed us to stay alive and get to the next level. Fight or flight, right? Yeah, exactly. And, um, that has stuck with us and we haven't, I don't think as a species or as a community, global community really found a, a systemic way of sort of, um, keeping, keeping that, uh, brain at bay. Mm. Um, the other, the other reason why this is really problematic is that, you know, some problems are evident. You can see if something breaks, you know, you can, you can tell if something's not working a lot of, a lot of problems. It's easy to see that they're problems. This particular one is difficult to tell it's a problem in the moment because it, you, you, you can get so emotionally consumed by it. It's not until two days or three days later that you sort of look in retrospect and realize, Oh my God, I was making decisions. Um, in the worst possible state of mind. Mm. And so that's, that's another really, really bad corporate to this particular issue is, you know, I think it's, it's all about cultivating when it's in the moment that wait a second, I'm actually freaking out right now and likely degrading my decisions. I should probably pause. <laughs> yeah, but it's true. My wife always says to me, like never make a decision if you're not in a mindset of, of certainty or power or confidence, you know, there's words you can, you can do interchangeably, I guess. And for me, I find, most entrepreneurs, when they're in that space, it's like a big decision you need to make. But it's either it's downsizing or a pivot or something. You're so associated with it. And that's the problem. 
Because you actually, you need to almost untrain your mind to give yourself that little gap that you need. You don't need a big one. It's a little thing to see the light, you know? And like to your point, like, I don't know if, how the hell do you train someone to disassociate from something that's their second marriage? <laughs> do you know yeah. what I mean? And you're responsible for people, you know, and employees and staff and so on. So yeah. Well, if I find out, I'll let you know. I'll ping your mail. <laughs> it's all good. Um, when you when you hear the word successful, who do you think of and why? There's a, a leader in Austin who's a who's a dear friend and mentor to me. His name is Ed Perry. And uh, when I hear the word successful, I think of my mentor Ed, um, because he is he is the kind of leader that is just. Um, incredibly generous with people, and he truly has. I think in all the in 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 the many ways that he shows up in this community in Texas, he um, he really thinks about others, and he is just innately generous, mm. and um, he just emanates this sense of peace and um, generosity that is uh, infectious, and and so I really I think of him first first and foremost. Okay. Lovely. Mentors are important, right? I think a lot of us don't actually have any, (laughs) Um, but it's critical. Absolutely. Yeah. Cool. So contrary to um, the successful uh, association, when you think of the word punchable, who comes to mind? Punchable. Punchable. Yeah. Uh, I might get in, I might get in a little bit of trouble for saying this, but right now I think Donald Trump is highly punchable. I'm a bit embarrassed that he's gotten as far as he has, oh, no. um, but he's the, he's the one at the top of my list right now. <laughs> I get that answer, well, that, that answer a lot, by the way, so don't feel bad about it. <laughs> cool. So if you have to go back in time and, um, you met your 20 year old self, right? So dropping out of varsity, if you were to give that, that you, that 20 year old, you one piece of advice about business, what would it be? Oh man, I took myself and I still do, uh, took myself way too seriously. Um, and I just thought it was all very serious, you know, and lately I've been learning from my team and uh, people around me that, that you know, having fun along the way is actually really, really important. And I just, I really discounted that. I just thought it was all about rolling up your sleeves and just getting the work done. And um, I actually think I, I passed over a lot of creative inspirations and um, incredible experiences and, you know, once in a lifetime relationships because I was just, I was just too much about achieving and uh, if, if there's any chance that my 20-year-old self would actually listen to the advice, I'd, I'd uh, <laughs> encourage him to you know, maybe be a little bit less about achieving and a little bit more about enjoying the, the process. Yeah, exactly. Um, I would give that exact same advice to me, by the way. <laughs> it's uncanny. Um, yeah, because it is, you have, to, you have to love it, you know, and you've got, like, I'm so impatient. Like I want it done yesterday. You know, I don't deal with shit. If people like drop the balls, they know that they've dropped balls, you know? Um, And and that's frustrating for me. But you almost need to just step back and say, it's good. It's one day at a time. And if I can just milk this day for everything that that I can, then 
you know, put those days back to back and suddenly you've, you've actually been a lot happier. You know what I mean? Cause it's more about the process. As you said, it's not about the goal because most of the time when you reach the goal, you go, well, shit, this sucks. I need more of it. Or I need to do something else. You know what I mean? So yes. it's so yeah. much about the process. So it's, I totally agree with you there. So uh, last two questions, Tim, um, what, what motivates you, uh, to be successful? Um, and how do you stay motivated? You know, for me, it's, it's Abraham Maslow and his old, you know, five levels of his human, uh, the hierarchy of human needs, you yeah. know, and the very, very top is self-actualization. And, and the, the definition of self-actualization is to become actually what you are potentially mm-hmm. to you know, be all that you can be essentially. Mm-hmm. And, um, every single, I mean, I don't, I'm, I don't think of this consciously necessarily. I'm, I'm just sort of like. I think all of us are tuned into that. We've got some kind of sense of what we are potentially. And I think every single one of us is, is innately driven to, is, is innately driven to strive for that. Um, I, um, I've experienced a lot of setbacks and there's been a lot of failures along the way. And, you know, there's been uh, all sorts of, um, all sorts of deals that were supposed to come around that, that flopped and products that were supposed to take, take off that completely tanked. And, um, I'm really thankful um, that I, when I woke up the next morning, uh, despite the emotional low the day before, was able to sort of start anew. Mm. And it was kind of like a, a blank slate that I had the next morning. And with that blank slate, I was able to just sort of go back to work um, and find purpose again. And I'd say that resilience is probably the thing is, that has kept me going. Um, um, and yeah, I think that I think that that drive to to achieve all all that we could you know achieve is is innate to every single one of us, and it's just a matter of of clearing out whatever emotional noise that that might be in the way. Um, I, that's that's my best answer for that one. I think. Okay, um, you mentioned the word purpose there. Uh, I always end with this question for for all my guests. But what's your why as an entrepreneur? What gets you out of bed in the morning? Yeah, for me, it's to unlock the potential within every single person organization I work with. And, um, you know, for, for, um, for my employees, I believe they have an incredible amount of brilliance and creativity and genius, um, that I just, I want to, I want to set them up to succeed and then get out of their way for customers. I think there's an an incredible amount of latent potential in their organizations that they might not be able to see or might be, um, a little bit too close to fully understand. And my hope is to help them to sort of step back and see it and then actually realize it with technology. Mm. Um, I certainly hope to do that with my son, Graham, and, uh, with my wife and our family and in every, in every part of my life, that's my hope. Um, it's a great question. Cool. Um, I've got a one year old, one year, five months, also boy, his name's Franklin. <laughs> I know. Jeez, dude, it's hard, eh? <laughs> it's, it was a new, completely new experience. I couldn't have prepared for it. Yeah, no, exactly. There's no book. Forget that. Forget that. I'm like, first of all, your parents that didn't actually tell you how hard it was going to be. <laughs> yeah, so I think that the why for me is so, so there as well. I mean, it's a large part of the reason why I have these conversations. Uh, and then the reason why I started Digital Kung Fu was to leave a legacy for him and a network that, you know, ultimately creates value for others, but also for him one day so that he can understand, you know, I believe anywhere that if you help enough people get what they want, you'll get what you want. So 
it's just, you know, I don't know what, how else to describe it. And that would be my kind of best answer for that too. So, but Tim, thank you so, so, so much for your time today. I really, really enjoyed it. Um, one of the best shows Likewise. so far. Yeah, cool. Thanks, buddy. And um, yeah, wishing you and Praxin all the best. And hopefully one day we will be able to have that beer in, uh, in Austin. I very much look forward to it. Thanks so much for having me. You're very welcome, Tim. Thanks so much. Ciao, ciao. Bye. Remember that the show is now on iTunes, so please head on over and either write us a review or subscribe for new episodes. And if you'd like to be an exclusive real-time participant on our next Digital Kung Fu live show, then visit our website at digitalkungfu.co.za forward slash live to get early bird VIP access. Thanks for listening to the Digital Kung Fu Show. If you'd like to check out more episodes and get access to our growing community of entrepreneurs working together to succeed in business, then please visit our website at www.digitalkungfu.co.za. Ever wanted to become a best-selling author? Well, I'm in the influence business and I work with business owners and CEOs and business leaders to help them scale their influence. And we do this as a team by helping you to become a best-selling author, sought-after speaker and industry influencer in only 30 days. My team and I have developed a system that delivers a best-selling book and a launch campaign 300% faster and 50% less cost than anyone else in North America. This system is incredibly efficient. One of my clients Haiku went from a 2% share of voice globally to an 11% share of voice globally in only seven days. If you'd like more information, head on over to showworksmedia.com for more. That is showworks with an X.com.